All right, so let's get right into it. Um, we're in this series called Marked, um, Hidden in Christ, and this series really stems from the fact that Christ, um, his finished work on the cross, and what he is um, requiring us to do as followers of Christ. And so the story we're focusing on today is um, common to many of you. It's the story of this unnamed woman who anoints Jesus' feet with the expensive oil and dries his feet um, with her hair. Now, this, the question most of us have asked is, how can I find acceptance with God? And I know we've asked the question before in our lives at some point. But we also ask ourselves the question, how can we find acceptance with man? You guys ever asked those questions before? No? Thank you. See, we secretly long to be accepted by someone. Um, and if that's not enough, life often forces us to seek acceptance. We call it an annual performance review. You guys ever been through that? Exactly. I mean, think about it. It doesn't matter how much we believe that we're called to do the things that we do, whether it's in our job or in our church. We know it's going to come. We find ourselves having to do something to perform well, to impress people, to make ourselves relevant. So it's natural for us to um, constantly seek the approval in that sense. We look to our peers to often gauge our worth. But much of our experiences in life are based on performances and social ranking. But Solomon reminds us, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 4 says, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. But what if we felt as though we've met all the social requirements? but still find ourselves uh, needing acceptance? Or what if we're you know, in a season of our lives where we find rejection because of our social um, ranking? Um, last week, we spoke about how Jesus called four fishermen um, to partner with him in changing the world. And their story is significant to us because they were uneducated, um, nothing special about them. Um, scripture says that they were ordinary people. Uh, today, I'm in Luke chapter 7. I was preparing Luke chapter 5 and found a, you know, sometimes you have a better story. Um, so I moved to Luke chapter 7 late Friday night. And so today's theme, or if you will, is finding acceptance. Um, uh, but in case you forget everything that I say, hopefully you don't forget everything, but in case you do, uh, my sermon can be summarized um, into one statement. The ministry of grace is enough to remove condemnation from our lives. The ministry of grace is enough to remove condemnation from our lives. Um, Romans 8 and verse 1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Jesus. When we look at that verse, it says there is therefore now, which means there's there was a point in our lives where we might have felt condemned. But it says there's therefore now no more condemnation. Condemnation means an expression of strong disapproval. Um, socially, we might say there's the existence of cancer culture. But politically, 
they used the word censor, right? According to the U.S. Senate's website, it says that censure is a formal statement of disapproval in the form of a resolution that is adopted by a majority vote. The term censure is not found in the Constitution, and the word does not have to appear in the resolution. But here's what caught my attention. It also says that censorship does not remove a senator from office, but it can have a powerful psychological effect on a member and his or her relationships in the Senate. The key part for me is the statement that says, psychological effect. Condemnation has a powerful psychological effect that affects our relationship with God. It, it, you know, Satan is not worried about us coming to church if he can affect how we think psychologically. All he has to do is to make us feel undeserving of God's love. All he has to do is to make us feel like our lives are so messed up that there's no possibility of acceptance by God. That's all he has to do. But in addition to this psychological effect, condemnation is a social space where your flaws are noticed and picked apart by other people. Have you ever experienced that before? You guys not going to talk to me today. See, when people are constantly um, using your weaknesses against you, it makes them feel better. Um, they improve their social ranking while your social ranking goes down. Um, think about how many people receive their nicknames. I won't ask you what yours is. But sometimes it's the result of something that was socially unacceptable, but others make that name acceptable so you can wear that weakness for the rest of your life. We often call these names labels. Loser, lazy, stupid, selfish, fat, liar. All these labels are designed for us to accept based on something that was done in our past. And we are rarely given a name that points to our future. Wouldn't it be nice for us to just walk around here and people say, you are the righteousness of God. You are the engineer. You are going to be the next president. Instead, we wear the labels of our past. So when people find out your flaws, they give you this name, naming you after your weakness. They connect your identity to what you did or didn't do. And there's one thing we know for sure with these nicknames that we might have is that you can't explain your name out of a nickname. Can't explain your way out of it. The more you try to compl you know, complain, what happens? The more that name sticks, right? You guys have been there? So you wear that name that you hate, and you say, only my family or friends call me that name. If this name calling is only acceptable, by the closest uh, people to you, it can also reveal the depth of these scars that we wear. So what names have you been given during your life? Just think about that. Where did you get your name, and does that name remind you of your weakness? Where were you when your weakness were exposed? 
So this kind of condemnation often shapes us because we all remember the why behind those names and, you know, and the weaknesses that we have. And here we are in life having to process these feelings of rejection. Some of us are still learning how to get over our past. Now we feel like we're in this game of life and we have to win. And by winning, I mean we ask ourselves, how do I hide my flaws? How do I hide my weaknesses um, if you're going to constantly use it against me? And when we successfully hide these weaknesses, we win. We might cry at night, you know, but it's a sacrifice that we are willing to make just so we're not identified by this weakness. But let me remind you that the ministry of grace is enough to remove condemnation from our lives. Jesus offers acceptance when we place our trust in him. Our text today is the story of a sinful woman who felt rejected, but she received forgiveness from Jesus. But it's also about a man that needs forgiveness from his self-righteousness. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, reading from verses 36 to 50. And I'm going to invite you to stand, but I'm going to read for us today. Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask, flask of, anointment, of ointment, and standing before him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her hair, uh, head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender, lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, pray that your word will come alive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, this story is only found in the Gospel of Luke. There is a similar story in the other Gospels, but... That story took place in the home of Simon the leper, and the woman in that story was Mary of Bethany, Lazarus' sister. 
So this is not the same story. This story is with Simon the Pharisee and this unnamed woman. Now, many believe that this story took place in, in Capernaum, where Jesus is invited to dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, let me offer some information about uh, Pharisees in case you're not familiar. Um, they were known for their strict devotion to the Mosaic law. Now, as far as they're concerned, being right is more important than doing the right thing. Now, I want you to understand their logic. There's a story in Luke 13 where this woman had been ill for 18 years, and Jesus heals this woman. So many of us would say, well, that's a good thing that you're offering healing. Would you all agree with that? Yes? Well, look at what happened in Luke 13, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. In other words, why can't you get healed tomorrow? Why today? Today is the Sabbath day. It's not a day for healing. Just imagine if we had people who are sick and say, yes, we, you know, yes, we can pray for you, but you have to come on a non-Sunday. Or if someone says, yeah, I'm hungry, like we have a food pantry, like you're hungry, but we don't feed on Mondays. We just offer meals on Saturday. That's, that's what these guys think about. They're had very devoted to the Mosaic Law. So they're saying, well, I'm not saying that you can't get healed. You just can't get healed on the Sabbath day. So it was all about being right, regardless of the right thing to do. If you read Matthew 23, Jesus actually dedicates an entire chapter rebuking the Pharisees for things like these. Now, there are three things we learn from um, Matthew 23. And he says, the first thing is that Pharisees were always exerting their authority over people. So they're always talking about how much they know about the law. And, you know, and you're right standing. So, this, you know, as you can see, the leader in the synagogue, he was trying to rebuke Jesus. The Pharisees were always seeking public recognition. There's a story in the Bible where the Pharisee is praying and he says, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like that person. That's how the Pharisees are always praying. Then Pharisees had this strict devotion to the law while neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. If you read Matthew 23, 23, that's what it says there. So the Pharisees always had this confrontation with Jesus because they didn't believe that he was saved like how they were saved. That's them. But they also didn't recognize him as the Messiah. The Pharisees were often hostile towards Jesus throughout his ministry. And yet we get to Luke chapter 7, and Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee having dinner. Now from what we've read, Simon is genuinely trying to have a relationship with Jesus. He's trying to know more about him, trying to show him some hospitality. So he invited him to his home, and Jesus went there. Luke 7.36 says that Jesus reclines at this table. And what would happen in those days, the tables were much lower. So they weren't necessarily sitting at a table. When it says recline, it was kind of like they're having their hands like this on the ground, and they were eating with their right hand from the table. So that's how they were. So that's what Jesus was doing. So the guests would often be like that. And it says in verse 38, the woman shows up uninvited. Have you ever planned an event 
and had uninvited guests? Yes? Some people said no, because I have a buzzer. I won't let you in. You know, you know, in the, we're from Jamaica, and I'm sure it might be for you, but I can just talk about Jamaica. That's where I'm from, born and raised. When you get married, the entire community shows up. My sister got married in Jamaica, and she invited just a few people. We had over 300 people showed up. That's just the norm. It's all about if they know you, they're going to show up and they're going to say, well, even if you don't know her, you know her cousin. And that's how people showed up to weddings. But, but here's this woman. She shows up uninvited. And these guys are thinking, well, first of all, who told you that Jesus was here? I'm going to switch. So this woman shows up. Shows up unannounced. She got into this house. And she's not identified by name in our story. But we learn about her profession. Verse 37 describes her as a woman of the city who was a sinner. In other words, she was a call girl. You know what that means? Call girl? Some are like, not quite sure. She's a prostitute. Imagine the scene. You're having dinner. A prostitute walks in, unannounced, with an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, it's widely known um, throughout history that this fragrant oil uh, would have cost a year's salary. So very expensive. But she has no problem breaking this flask and pouring it on Jesus' feet. And we read that she, you know, used her tears to wet his feet, used her hair to dry his feet. And not, not only was this a kind gesture, but a, there's no towel. And then she's now, she now kisses his feet, and she's pouring this oil. Be reminded, she is a prostitute. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Imagine having small group one night, and everyone gets down to have dinner on the floor like you do. A prostitute walks through the door and stands over one of the guys. She's now at this point, I can imagine everyone would be fixated on what is going to happen next. Now it's already awkward that a prostitute shows up to begin with, right? But now she starts to pour ointment on your feet and she's rubbing your feet. Now, someone has a lot of explaining to do, right? But notice what Jesus does in our story. He does absolutely nothing. In fact, he allowed this entire scene to play out. Why is this important? This woman intentionally showed up in her broken state, and she is remorseful and repentant for her sins, and she realized that Jesus is the one who can offer forgiveness. Now, the life she's known is one for prostitute, where men would take advantage of her and possibly reject her. But for the very first time in her life, she doesn't feel condemned or ashamed because of her past. Think about how many people are seeking an experience 
where they can say for the very first time, I don't feel ashamed or rejected by the church. A moment where they can say, I feel accepted in spite of my past. Sometimes people go from church to church hoping that at some point someone will accept them for who they are, not who they used to be. Maybe they're still a little bit you know, rough around the edges. When you can't find acceptance, you resolve to what you know, sin. And then you're given a name based on the sin that you're committing. You are a liar, a murderer, a drunk. You feel forced to wear these labels, not because you want to wear it, but it feels like it's the only place that you find community. So you showed up unannounced to a service like this, or even a large group because you're told that if you show up to a place where people are serving Jesus, you might find acceptance. So here you are, repentant, remorseful for your past sin. Tears are in your eyes because now you have a sense that there is this overwhelming love by Jesus. And for the very first time, you don't feel bound by shame. You feel loved by Jesus. Not just loved, but also accepted by Jesus. You begin to realize that your past, your sin, the guilt that you feel is no longer there. It's miraculously removed. It's this realization that Jesus is the only one who can forgive us, so we bring our brokenness to him. This was the story of this unnamed woman, woman that we read about. The problem is that Simon the Pharisee did not understand what Jesus was doing inside her heart. But he also didn't realize that he needed forgiveness. Simon had this judgmental heart to both the woman, but also to Jesus. Luke tells us this story. Luke 7 verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, talking about Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, watch this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, Jesus knows our heart. Because look at how he responds. It says that Simon the Pharisee, he thought about it. But look at what Jesus says. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him. We didn't see Simon asking him a question. He was just thinking it. But yet Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, and he answered. Simon says, yes. Say it, teacher, say it. He didn't realize that he was about to get chewed out. Verse 41 to 43. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other... 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, duh. The one I suppose for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus then summarizes everything in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, our love for God is tied to our understanding of how much he has forgiven us. Which means 
it is possible that the reason you're not loving God as you should is because you haven't come to an understanding of how much you need his forgiveness. I was driving from the airport um, yesterday morning, about 3 a.m., and I was thinking to myself, how lucky I am. Now, I know you'd like for me to say how grateful and how blessed. No, but I said how lucky. I was reflecting on the grace that was extended to me. See, it's easy for us to ask for forgiveness of sins, and at times we might even wrestle with sinful thoughts. We know that if we commit this act, it's a sin, but we willfully do it anyway because we know grace is available. What a risk that we take. Willfully ignoring the prompting of the Creator to satisfy our flesh, a temporary gratification. And I thought about what would happen if I died in between my sin and seeking forgiveness from sin. See, when you understand your constant need for forgiveness, it changes how you live. So you'll never take the grace of God for granted anymore. Now, there are several themes within this story. We could focus on the prostitute. We could focus on the Pharisee. We could focus on sin and forgiveness. We could focus on generosity and love. But here's what I want us to see for the remainder of today. I want us to see what Jesus is designed for all of us. Jesus demonstrated the ability to relate to both the prostitute, someone who is rejected by society, but also the Pharisee, the religious people, who lacks the ability to see their shortcomings. At the end of the day, both people need to find acceptance. And Christ had the ability to offer it to both. So what made Jesus so relatable? I mean, sinners wanted to be around him. And the religious people, they wanted to be around him. There's a difference between understanding someone's story, relatable, and wanting to connect with someone because of their story, relational. Do you desire to be connected with me after learning how flawed I am? See, that's a question with the answer. It's easy for us to say, I get it. But when you get my story, do you still want to hang around me? There's a difference. Or is it easier to reject me because my story is more messed up than your story? How well do we follow Jesus? Because regardless of how we lived or how someone lived, Jesus is still relatable. Are we relatable? He was accepting. No, he wasn't accepting the sin because we see it in, in story how he often say that you shouldn't seek forgiveness. But he had the ability to make both the religious and the outcasts feel accepted while they're around him. Think about this for a moment. All of us in this room, all of us, we all have a different story. Some of these stories are the reasons why we have isolations. And yet, even with these differences, Jesus has the ability to make all of us feel accepted. 
I don't know all your stories. You might not know mine either. And yet, we're all here and we all feel accepted by God. And sometimes we might say, I can't hang with you because your story is so messed up. And yet we can still find a commonality in worshiping God. He has the ability to relate to all of our stories, even if we stay far from it. He takes all of our stories and says, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You are accepted. Jesus sees us corporately, but he loves us individually to let us know that we are accepted. See, others might not understand the tears that you cry. They may not understand why you worship the way you do. You might be singing loudly out of key. But Jesus understands. He understands. So how well are we doing in allowing everyone to feel accepted? Let's make it more personal. How well am I doing in allowing everyone to feel accepted regardless of what their stories reveal? Here's the truth. It takes work in making everyone feel accepted. It does. The question is, are you willing to put in the work? The answer is if you're not willing to put in the work, then you're not following the ways of Christ. That's the bottom line. Jesus died for our sins, and when we receive forgiveness, we receive his spirit, and it comes with a fine print. We're commanded to follow Jesus, and it's not easy finding balance to love everyone, loving both the sinner and the Christian. But if we don't find the balance of accepting people, we'll gravitate to one of two extremes. Either we'll live, you know, by the world's standards, indulging, indulging in sin, or we'll, you know, so what we'll do is we go to the parties and we come to church on Sundays, or we'll be like the Pharisee in our story. We know everything in the Bible. We never miss a story, but we have zero impact in the lives of people around us. As Christians, we should seek to follow Christ by not living in our Christian bubble and having zero impact. Get out of our Christian bubble. That's not why Jesus died for our sins. So five things I want, us to, to, I want to close with. The first is this. Jesus desires for us to live a consistent life that doesn't compromise our walk with him. Say Jesus didn't love one group differently from another. He was consistent in how he engaged each person. I mean, he was who he was back then. He is who he is today. He was uncompromised. He understood his mission. He knew that he was the son of God. He knew what he believed, yet it didn't stop him from relating to everyone. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 17 reveals three things that's needed for us to have this consistent life that he did. Number one is that we must be people of integrity. Number two, we must be people who speak the truth. Number three, we must be consistent in our walk with God. Those three things we, we see within, those, within that text. We can't keep changing how, you know, we, we, we live. Christ wants us to live one way, and that's how it should be all the time. We've got to be committed in our walk with Christ. 
because we, because we constantly engage this sinful world, it can be difficult because, you know, this is the world we live in. But Jesus says he has overcome this world. So, so now that we have the Spirit of God, we can engage this world and we can live by his Spirit. Amen? The next thing is to avoid being judgmental. People gravitated to Jesus because he never looked down on them. He lived a life that was admirable than everyone, and yet he acted, he never did, well, I was better than you. The Pharisees did that. That was Simon's problem. He was bothered that this prostitute showed up, and he was even more bothered that Jesus allowed her to touch him. That's what he said. Luke 7.39, we see it. He went through, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That's the problem with so many people in our, in our church. They can't, you know, see their own sinfulness because they're of their own self-righteousness. And guess what? That's also a sin. Often say, I can't believe that person has such a filthy mouth. But you gossip. Or I can't believe that person has such an angry issue. What about the unresolved bitterness in your heart? So stop being judgmental because it makes us ineffective for the kingdom. The next one is to avoid the trap of legalism. Some things in the Bible are clearly spelled out. It's spelled out as right or wrong. But some things in the Bible, it defers to our sanctified conscience. Legalism is when I convince you to live according to my conscience or my conviction. And then if you don't live accordingly, I look down on you or think less of you. That's legalism. So let's say you, you know, believe that going to the jazz club is a sin. That's your conviction. It's not, it's not defined in the Bible. It's up to you to determine what is no longer acceptable when you start going to, you know, these jazz clubs. You know, just, I mean, one, one of the wake-up calls for me was you know, with music. I used to, you know, play, oh, it's just music. I'm traveling the world playing music. And then I was like, man, I can't do this. How do I leave these, you know, pool parties and go straight to the stage to lead worship? I, I stopped. That was my conviction. Now, I love jazz music. So if you see jazz music as a sin, you got to show me in scriptures. But legalism would be saying, well, how could you? Hey, that's your conviction. I'm not there yet. So we have to make allowance, right, that when something is not explicitly stated in Scripture, we allow our conscience to dictate it, right? We allow our conscience to dictate the religious liberty. We all have this religious liberty. We have to ensure that we don't allow legalism to take control, to say, you can't do this because it's just wrong. Show me in Scripture. So legalism is dishonorable before God. 
So there are some things you won't do and some places you can't go because you, you know, you might be weak. It's life. Sorry. I mentioned earlier how the Pharisees were mad because Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. So they couldn't celebrate the healing of this woman because it broke protocol. In fact, Matthew 15 verse 2 tells us that they were mad because the disciples didn't fast and they were mad because they didn't wash their hands how they're supposed to wash their hands. Think about that. That's how the Pharisees were. You didn't wash your hands, you didn't spend 30 seconds. You guys go by the 30-second rule? I've seen some five-second rules. I'm like, I hope you're not going to be in the kitchen. Yeah. I've also seen, let's not go there. Anyway. <laughs> but legalism will also alienate the body of Christ, which leads to our next point. Don't allow yourself to become isolated. Jesus went wherever sinners were, which was one of the accusations by the Pharisees. When Jesus called uh, Matthew, or Levi, which was the story I was, I was going to use, he was a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised by people. Um, they charged all kinds of taxes. You, you paid a tax just because you were alive, literally. And you paid a tax if you were Walking down the street, if you're going to be selling things, you pay the taxes. You pay taxes. If you had a cart while you're selling things, you pay taxes based on how many wheels it had. You pay tax for everything. That was Matthew's job. So they hated him. When he got saved, the first thing he did was to ha have a party. He invited Jesus, and Jesus went to this party. And who was there? Other tax collectors. So they didn't like the fact that Jesus was hanging around with, with sinners. But again, if you're a Christian, you're already saved. i got to find people who are not saved to share the love of Jesus. Amen? That's what we mean by getting out of our Christian bubble. Now that we're all saved, go out there and make disciples. Jesus told us why he hung out with sinners. Luke 5, 31 to 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So now that when you are saved, I'm going to leave you alone in your Christian bubble and go find those who are not saved. That's what Christ is calling us to do. And then he's also saying, when you see me out there sharing the gospel to sinners, don't judge me. See, it's unhealthy for us to be isolated from the world. We need the Spirit of God to help us engage the world so that they can find their acceptance in Christ. Jesus expects our life to influence the world. So even though you're hanging out with those who are not saved, doesn't mean that you should be influenced by the world. We need the Spirit of God to help us live a life, be an influence over them. Amen? Then Jesus desires that we love people the way he loves people. So you don't have to love what people do, but we're obligated to love their souls as the person whom Christ died to save. He died to save them. Christ didn't die just for us. He died for those who are not yet saved. 
So when you receive the opportunity, then you share Jesus. So we're not saying to go into a restaurant and just see people and say, oh, I know they're a sinner. I'm just going to sit down and just say, you are a sinner. But maybe you can offer to maybe pay for their drink. Maybe you have a conversation with them. Before you know it, it opens an opportunity. And, you know, that's what he wants us to do, provide an opportunity. You know, I, I was, I was, not, I see the time, but I just got to tell this quick story. I saw it on social media. You know, I, I pray for people on social media, but I also got a good laugh on social media. But, but this guy, you know, maybe you've seen it too, I don't know. But he said it was, you know, it was a story about this guy being in the drive-thru. And he was there, you know, um, and the lady was honking behind but what he was really doing is trying to pay for the meal, you know, behind. And so he, when she got there, he said, oh, the guy would have paid for your meal. Now, when he got to the counter, he took both meals. Because he said, I paid for that too. <laughs> so I'm going to show you a lesson for, for honking at me. I just thought it was just funny, you know. But anyway. But when you receive opportunities, not like that, but when you receive opportunities, you then share Jesus. You can tell them how, tell them about your story and how, you know, you received this acceptance because of your sinful past. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I invite the worship team to come forward. I'm reading that verse again because this is one of the most misunderstood verses. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with a gentleness and respect. This verse is not about apologetics. This is about telling someone why you follow Jesus. There's a difference between sharing your story and trying to convince someone to follow Christ because of your story. So it says this in, in, in that verse. It's saying to offer a defense, which means, why are you so happy? Let me tell you why I'm happy. Because of what Christ did for me. That's the defense. You're defending what Christ has done for you. Not to say, let me, let me offer this none. That's not what it's saying in that verse. That's why they have this semicolon right there. It's saying that this part is over. We have to be a church that is relatable the way Jesus was. You can relate to the rich, to the poor, to the self-righteous, to the sinner. Same we have to do in our lives. Being relatable to the Christians, those who are seeking, the atheists, the ones who we believe have the worst sin in the world. Christ is saying, if you love them the way that I love people, you have no problem in making an impact for the kingdom. May we be a church that can follow Jesus in allowing people who are the highest to the lowest to find their acceptance in him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're struggling with acceptance, 
we've just shared in, in, in scriptures, that Jesus gave time, gave space for someone to find their acceptance. And today that can be a day for you. Christ wants to offer that acceptance for you. Maybe you're a Christian, but you still struggle with that, with that sense of acceptance. Am I really accepted? No, in, in spite of the sins that I've committed, in spite of your, your past, it's been so, so bad according to your standards. You can still find acceptance by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you will help us to realize what it says. It shows us that you are a God that allows us to find our acceptance in you. It doesn't matter our past. If we just come to you with willing hearts to lay it all before you, we can find peace and joy in you. I pray, God, for the one that doesn't have a relationship with you, that you allow them to know that they're loved not just by you, but by us, the church, because we're following you, Jesus. So I pray that you help everyone to find their acceptance in you. I pray that you continue to just strengthen us and help us to live a life that's pleasing before you. We just love you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.